I love to sing too much <laughs> because I sometimes on Sunday morning sing out my voice before I get up to preach. But it's worth it because uh, he's worthy of losing your voice if you need to. Let's see, have I been here since I went to Cameroon in November? No? You didn't invite me back, huh? <laughs> well, we're going to Cameroon again in uh, March. And uh, let me say, uh, we have such a privilege teaching about 50 to 60 young pastors, mostly village pastors, and uh, just teaching them theology and the Word of God. Uh, this time we go, we'll teach a course on hermeneutics, how to study the Bible, and uh, a course on the Gospel of Mark. And uh, every time we go, we pick up new friends. So this time uh, we'll fly into one city and do a pastor's conference and then fly into the capital, Yaoundé, and do another three-day conference. And then we will do the pastoral training after that. So we'll have a full schedule. I think in November, in six days, I preached 25 times. So uh, I was ready to come home and have a good turkey dinner for Thanksgiving, <laughs> which we did, a good 42-pound turkey. But while I was there, I had the joy of being at a school for the blind. It's run by a Christian man. And, uh, you know, poor in Cameroon is poor. But blind poor is really poor. And uh, just going to this school and meeting the students and the faculty in their very sparse, barren conditions, but to see the joy that so many of them had in just knowing Christ. And uh, while we were there, they put on a little program for us, and we had brought with us six what they call white canes. You've seen the blind walking, they have these folding canes. And uh, when we presented them to the director, he said, when Jesus healed Bartimaeus, he gave him new eyes. And he said, white canes are Jesus's gift of eyes to blind people. And then he showed us, he gave us a demonstration on how a blind person uses a white cane to maneuver through a city that is 10 times crazier than midtown Manhattan, if you can imagine. And yet they, they maneuver. So I decided when we go back this time, I'm taking more canes. So I bought 50 canes to take back. And, uh, Next time I go back, I'm going to take 100 canes and Sonship is going to fund it, right? <laughs> so uh, they are so blessed. And then we get, we get the joy of, of preaching the gospel at the school. And uh, they hold a service and Steve will preach in French and I'll preach in English and he'll translate for me. But we share the gospel and see blind people who cannot see this world, but are able, through the gospel, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And uh, that, that is a privilege. Isaiah 29 tonight. I want to talk about...
about God's cure for spiritual hypocrisy. And please, as I bring this message, don't think that I'm picking out anyone in particular. I'm actually preaching to everyone in particular. Because when it comes to spiritual hypocrisy, none of us are guiltless completely. Though some live that as a lifestyle, all of us at times fail to live what we know, to do what we ought to do, uh, to portray something that we're not. Uh, I am guilty at times of spiritual hypocrisy. My heart isn't always where the exterior of my life is, though that's the goal, is to have the heart driving the life, but spiritual hypocrisy is something we all struggle with. Isaiah 29 offers God's cure to that. It's not an easy message. It was not easy for Isaiah to bring this message, and it certainly wasn't easy for God's people to receive this message. He's speaking to them in the 8th century B.C. Probably Hezekiah is king at this time, and he is a fairly good king. And so externally, he has restored worship to the southern kingdom of Judah. But we know that the people of the land, though they may be participating in the external rites of worship, that their heart is not there. And God is going to indict them and expose them to their heart. Uh, Isaiah 29 is poetry. Most of your translations will write it out as poetic lines. It has three stanzas to it. Uh, Verses 1 through 8, verses 9 through 16, and verses 17 through 24 comprise the three stanzas of the poetry. Instead of reading the whole text, I'm going to read, begin by reading just excerpts of those three stanzas. I'm first of all reading in Isaiah 29 and verse 4, where God says through Isaiah to his people, you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. And from the dust, your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust. And the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And then into the second stanza, I want to read beginning in verse 9, verses 9 and 10. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. In other words, Isaiah is saying, as if, as if this is the condition you want, then have it. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and has covered your heads, the seers. And then out of the third section, I love this verse, verse 19. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. Again, this is an indictment. It's a hard message, but it's also a message of grace. 
Though we have a hard time understanding that. When we sing that song, show us your glory. I think the way that we would like to see the glory of God is very unlike the way that God places us and where he places us to see his glory. We'll see that it is often from the dust. Again, these people are basically apostate. They're claiming to be the people of God, but like Paul said, they have a form of godliness, but they lack the power of it. And as we know as Christians, the the power of godliness is nothing external. The power of godliness is the reality of the gospel constantly changing our hearts, showing us the grace of God so that the gospel works from the inside out. That's how it always works. Outward forms, any type of spiritual expression that is not from the heart is what Isaiah would call spiritual hypocrisy. This is why he indicts Judah. They pray. They haven't stopped praying, but they don't love God. They come to the temple. They offer their sacrifice, but they don't love God. They sing. Maybe they sing till they lose their voices, but they don't love God supremely. They worship, but it's not from the heart. The people of Isaiah's day are like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And Jesus takes the words of Isaiah and applies them to the Pharisees. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And it's very possible that This describes some of us tonight. Do we really offer God genuine worship? From loving him with all of our hearts or do we simply offer him our presence? Like that's good enough. I'm here. Do we offer him obedience that comes from loving him with all of our heart? Or do we obey because... uh, It's convenient because others are watching us. What is it that motivates us? Do we worship God, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth? Now, the truth is, at times, there's a little bit of hypocrisy in all of us. And tragically, sometimes, there's long-term hypocrisy in some of us. And so what Isaiah will do is he will bring God's word as a cure for spiritual hypocrisy. There's three things in our text I want us to think about tonight. When I read this text, as harsh as it is, all through it I could see the grace of God. It's like my dad. When I was a kid, he used to take me to his room often, but not often enough to spank me. He would turn the fan up so the noise wouldn't go out the window and he would let me have it. And then at the end, he would say, John, you know, I'm doing this because I love you. Of course, I didn't believe that then, (laughs) but I believe it now. 
that it was grace. It was his kindness toward me that brought pain to me so that I would avoid evil and avoid sin. That was grace. And so when I look at this text, I think of the grace of God. And it tells me three things about the grace of God. First of all, we need the kind of grace that humbles us. God will never tolerate spiritual hypocrisy. Whether it's in his people or whether it's in the world, eventually he will indict it. And he does that in grace. Because he wants us to know, to enjoy something better than the counterfeit. Something better than the fraudulent worship. Most of us enjoy a view from the top. I know I do. I love flying in that plane. Looking at the clouds below or the mountains below. Man, you're on top. You have the best view of everything. I've been on top of the Sears Tower and looking over the city of Chicago and the Empire State Building and the World Trade Center. And there's just something about being on top. You're, you're like a king. You know, you're, you've got this power. You're in control. Uh, it's, it's glorious. We love the view from the top. But when it comes to seeing the glory of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God, We cannot see that from the top. You can't look down at God and worship him. You can only see God's grace and God's goodness by looking up from a humble position. It's our pride that tells us I need to be on top. I need to be strong. I need to be wise. And if I, you know, if I have everything in my control, then I've got life. And God's saying, no, let me teach you a lesson. Because later Isaiah will say this in Isaiah 57. He says, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I dwell in a high and holy place. But I dwell with him not who's in a high and holy place. I dwell with him who's low. Who has a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Listen again to Isaiah's verse words in our text in verse 4. You will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. And from the dust your speech will whisper. I find it interesting in the portion at the beginning of this text that we didn't read. That when Isaiah first addresses the southern kingdom... He calls them Ariel, which is another name for Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And Ariel means, means the Lion of God. Because Judah, when worshiping God, when protected by God, when God is fighting for them, is like a lion. They are the, the king of the jungle. They are powerful. But when Isaiah uses it in 29, he uses it 
mockingly. You think you are that king of the jungle. You think you are strong. But God is coming against you. You think that the great threat against Judah is the Assyrian kingdom that has conquered the north and now is surrounding uh, the cities of the south. You think that you're threatened by Assyria. But I want you to know that you're threatened by God. Because God says, I will besiege you. God says, I will set an encampment against you. God says, I will distress you. God is against you to defeat you. Because you're proud, you're mighty. You will be brought low. And I don't know about you, but I resist that. I hate dust. I'm a clean freak. I hate dust. If you invite me to your house and I look under your couch and I see dust, I'm probably going to clean it up. I just hate junk. I remember visiting a friend's house and I went to use the sink upstairs. And the water wouldn't go down. So I crawled underneath the sink. I took it apart. I took the stopper out. It had the gooeyest, blackest hair. And I put it back together and it worked. I put it in a little bag and I said, I cleaned your sink for you. <laughs> I hate dust. You can come to my place, man. I don't, I don't mind sleeping on the floor, but not a dusty floor. To be brought to the dust for most of us is a judgment. We like the view from the top. We don't want poverty. We don't want pain. We don't want problems. We don't want distress in life. We prefer the view from the top. But God's going to tell Judah that if you want to see the goodness and grace and the glory of God, if you want to have that possibility of seeing God, then you must be brought down to the dust. Now, I'm sure when we sang, show us your glory. We prefer the picture of some marvelous display of God as we're standing on a mountaintop. We're standing in some beautiful auditorium where God's glory is just shown. We don't envision laying in the dust to behold the glory of God. But if we'll be cured of spiritual hypocrisy, we must know a grace that humbles us. We must be brought to the dust. Now, sometimes being brought to the dust is a judgment. It's an indictment of our life and of our sin. Sometimes, though, you're walking with God, you're dedicated to God, and bang, you're brought to the dust. Because God is reminding you that this is who you are. Remember when God brought the curse to the man and the woman in Genesis 3? When he spoke to Adam, he says, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust. 
and to dust you will return. And when the psalmist in Psalm 103 pours out his heart to God, he says, God, you know our frame. You remember that we are dust. God doesn't forget who you are, but you do. You think you're something. You think you've got life together. You've got a handle on it. You're doing enough for God. You've grown enough. You're giving enough. You're on top of things. And God says, you forget that you are dust. And he brings us down. Not to destroy us, but to give us the opportunity to see his glory from the dust. Because we cannot see his glory from the heights. But in the dust you have a choice. You can be like that screaming child who has not gotten their way and they throw themselves to the ground with their face down and they pound the ground and they scream because they want their way. They turn their back to their parents. And that's the way many of us are when we're brought to the dust. We resist. We deserve better. God, why are you doing this to me? And our backs are turned to God and we're pounding the floor in our anger. When all we have to do is turn our face toward God. And see his goodness and his glory and his grace. In repentance and looking with new faith to Christ, we turn our face to the living God. And when you cry out from the dust, from a repentant heart, when you cry out from the dust and look at the cross and what God has done for you in Christ, then you might say, you will say with the psalmist in Psalm 113, praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all heavens. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks down from heaven, who looks down on the heavens and the earth? And then he says, he raises the poor from the dust. Yet we turn our face toward God in repentance and God looks down and he raises the poor from the dust. God hates pride wherever it's found. Whether it's his people, the southern kingdom of Judah, or whether it's the enemies of Judah. Because Isaiah tells us in verse 9 that the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust. Oh, they may be proud. They see the people of God seemingly weak and defeated. And so they are proud. And God says, no, I hate pride wherever it's found. And he will oppose it and bring the proud to the dust. And it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter how much money they are, how strong they are in this world. 
You remember John Lennon? One day he made this boastful statement. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue with that, he said, because I'm right. I will be proved right. Why, we are more popular than Jesus right now. I don't know which will go first, he said, rock and roll or Christianity. But I do know this. Christianity is still here. John Lennon is not. If he died without Jesus, then he lives with an eternal regret of such a boastful statement. God resists the proud wherever they are. Isaiah says that the proud boasts of man against God are only illusions and dreams that come to nothing. He says the multitude of the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams and behold he's eating and he awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or when a thirsty man dreams and behold he's drinking and he awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. God says I will oppose your pride. You will come to nothing. All of your boasts are just dreams and empty visions. Let me tell you something tonight. If you're in a fight against God, you will lose. He will defeat you. And he purposes to defeat you. That God in his sovereign mercy and grace has determined that no one on planet earth will ever find full satisfaction in life apart from him. It doesn't matter who you are. You're a believer who's looking elsewhere. You're an unbeliever who denies God. God in his mercy and his grace will not allow you to be satisfied with something that is lesser than his glory and that is temporal in this world. He will defeat you because he wants you to know his glory. When Saul gave his testimony for the third time in Acts 26, he says that when God spoke to him, God said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the pricks? Or as the newer translations say, against the goads. But that doesn't help because nobody knows what either of those are. or a goad is a long pole with a point on it. And you would use that to move the cattle down the road. And they stop, you give them a little jab, a little point, and they get moving again. And if they're not dumb cattle, they don't kick against that point because it only brings more hurt. And more injury to themselves. So Paul, God says to Saul, Saul, 
Why are you resisting my will? I'm prodding you not to hurt you. I'm prodding you to bring you into blessedness and to joy. And why do you keep resisting God and hurting, destroying yourself? We need the grace of God to humble us. You may be eating dust tonight. It's God's grace. You can lay on your face and turn your back to God and pound as hard as you want, but you'll still be miserable. Or you can repent and look to Jesus Christ and seek God's face and look to him. And the beginning of restoration takes place because first we need a grace that humbles us. But then secondly, we need a grace that exposes us to who we really are. Once we're humbled, God puts us on the surgeon's table. Now that we're down, he's going to cut open Israel and Judah and say, now this is who you really are. I love the way he puts it in the center of that second section, verses 15 and 16. He says, ah, You who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? And then God says, you turn things upside down. You've got it all wrong. You live in an upside down world. You don't understand the way that God intends it to be. Your world is a broken world. And there's three things he says about their upside down world, about our upside down world. First of all, we think we see when we're really blind to the truth. Now, the, the evidence of that in our daily life, that we're really proud enough, not enough to think that we know enough to handle life, is that, as Pastor Brian said earlier, how much are we given to studying the scripture? How much time do we take to seek God's will, to seek God's voice? Now, Too many of us are, we think we see, we understand, we know about this, we know how to find happiness. When God says, I've given you my word, my word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Isaiah says to them, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. If that's what you want, you can have it. But that's an upside down world. You really don't see even though you think you see. And if you think you see, then God only pours more blindness on you. He takes away the prophet's ability to know the will of God and the seer's ability to have visions that would reveal the will of God for his people. But why don't we see? We all make excuses for our blindness to the truth. 
You know, why, why can't I come out at 2.30? Well, it's a long day. Why can't I spend time reading and studying God's word uh, every day? Listen to what Isaiah says in verse 11. Verses 11 and 12. He says, the vision of all of this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. He's telling God's people everything God wants to say to you is like a book that has a lock and key on it. And when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give, it, give the book to the one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, but I can't read. Isaiah is saying, yes, it may seem like God's word is difficult to apprehend. It's like a sealed book. But the first man who can read but says it's sealed, it's got a lock and key, it's difficult, he's just plain lazy. That's all it is, he's lazy. Admittedly, not everything about Scripture, many things about Scripture are not easy. The clarity of the message of the gospel and the work of Christ, that's there, that's within reach of even a child. But lots of things in Scripture, it's like a sealed book. Sometimes preaching may be that way to you. I mean, it's hard to sit, it's hard to listen, it's hard to pay attention. And so he says, it's sealed. Yeah, I I can read, but there's a lock and key on the Bible. But the problem isn't just that he's lazy. He is lazy. Because if you really want something, you make whatever effort is necessary to, to do it. To get it. We know that. The problem is he does not really believe in the value of what might be in that sealed book. Because if he did, he would get a hammer, he would get a chisel, he would get whatever is necessary to break open that book to get, to hear the word of God. We're lazy. That may be the number one reason why people don't study the word of God. But the second man, he says, I I cannot read. Well, that sounds like a legitimate excuse. I don't read the Bible because I can't read. But the real truth is, it's not that he can't read. That's reality. It's that he doesn't want to learn how to read, to spend the time necessary in order to read, because he's not interested enough in what that book might have to say. He's disinterested. I mean, if, if it's really the word of God, 
If this is how God speaks to people today, if this book contains His will for my life and for the church and for the world, if this is God's voice and I don't know how to read, teach me how to read. Laziness and disinterest are simply evidences of a heart of unbelief where we're simply saying, I do not believe there is enough value in the word of God, in good theology, in knowing Christ more, that's worth the effort for me to break the seal, to work for the difficulties of getting to it, or to put aside the other interests I have in life. I mean, sometimes you can't even listen to a 40-minute sermon on a Sunday afternoon. Isn't that true? I find in Grace Church, I see people getting up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the, middle of the sermon. And I'm thinking, now, they're adults. It's probably just an excuse because they're tired of listening. But we're planning, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? When we were meeting in West Philly at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we found the conflict of interests. Because you know what happens late in the afternoon? Football. And we would see numbers decline. Because watching a game is more important than hearing the word of God. If we're interested, if I believe this is God's word, then I will do the hard work of trying to hear what God has to say to me. People say, I don't have time. Get up earlier. Everybody's got 24 hours in a day. Well, I need six six or eight hours sleep. Try five and a half. If this is God's word, What effort will you make to hear what God has to say to you? When it comes to regular attendance at Sunday worship, I could write a book on excuses that people have. Someone once told me that an excuse is the skin of a reason. That's the outward cover stuffed with a lie. And that's normally the case. Why don't you just tell me that what you want to do is more interesting to you, more important to you than faithful worship on the Lord's day? Why don't you tell me that you are more interested in spending time with your visitors that came and who don't want to go to church? You're more interested in that Sunday activity that the world and Satan has devised to provide you other interests than worship. Now we think we see, but Isaiah says we live in an upside down world. We're just not interested in the word of God. 
I remember going to a Broadway play some years ago with a friend and his wife and Dawn. It was Les Miserables. I love it. I could watch it every week. Beautiful music, great storyline, redemptive theme. I've never watched it without coming to tears. It's so moving. And my buddy, he's sitting there with his cell phone trying to hide it from the attendants because he's checking his stocks. He wants to know what is happening with his money. Almost every moment that he has to check what's happening with his money. Now it's okay if your money's more important than watching Les Mis. But there's no interest greater than the interest of knowing God's will, of knowing him more, of hearing his word. We live in an upside down world where the importance of my comfort and my interests override the value of the truth of God's word. But the second upside down world that we live in is this. We think that external religion is more important than inward reality. That's that text in the middle of that second stanza, verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me. Even that that semblance of what might appear to be worship, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Even that what seems to be a genuine respect for God is from the outside. It's the commandment of men. It's not driven from a heart that's being transformed by the gospel. We're good with the external. You know, the longer you're a Christian, the better you become at the external disciplines of looking like a Christian. Preachers do that all the time. I have preacher friends who seem to preach faithful every week while having affairs on the side. Deacons do it, elders do it. We can all become good enough at saying the right things, honoring God with our lips, singing out praises, praying wonderful prayers, which we ought to do. But somehow we think this is enough for God. God, I showed up, I gave my money. I sang the songs, I listened to the sermon, I put my time in, you should be impressed. And God says, no, I'm looking deeper than that. I'm laying you on the table, I'm taking the surgeon's knife, I'm cutting you open, and I'm going to expose you to the ugliness, the deep ugliness of your heart. If it's not driven by a love for God, He doesn't want just your body. He wants that, your strength. Love God with your strength. But love Him with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. And the third thing, the upside down world, we think that we are wise even though we are spiritually fools. 
This great passage that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he talks to the Corinthians about their, what they think is wisdom and what they think is foolishness. For them, the, the cross was such foolishness that this would be the way to rescue man to, mankind by a bleeding mass on the cross, a suffering supposed Messiah on the cross. This is foolishness. And God takes the words of Isaiah and in and, and, and 1 Corinthians 1, Paul does, and he reminds them, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Because the foolishness of God, this may be foolishness, this may be absurd, but the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And the weakness of God is stronger than man. So Isaiah says in that second section, verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will again, speaking for God, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. The discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? The thing that made, that the thing that made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed of him who formed it, he has no understanding. The wisdom of the world is just such in conflict with the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world does not believe in a God who can do what Isaiah calls wonder upon wonder. These acts of power, these acts of might, he does wonder upon wonder. Yes, it looks like the people of God are defeated in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's already been destroyed. But don't mistake that none of this has changed who God is. You don't judge God by what's happening in the world or by what's happening in your life. The only way you know God is by how he has revealed himself in scripture. And he remains the same. You may think that the world says God is weak. That what's happening in the world says that God is helpless or he doesn't care. But none of those things define God. God is who he is as revealed in scripture. I will again do wonderful things with his people and with wonder upon wonder. But the worldly wise can't see that. The wisdom of the world does not believe in a God who brings, who can bring the wisdom of the world to nothing. The wisdom of the world says that we can hide from God and get away with our pride and rebellion. Who sees us? The wisdom of the world says I belong to myself. I am my own creator. I create my own identity and my own destiny. And God says, no, you're... You're the clay. I'm the pot. It doesn't matter what you say. Your words are just words. God's words are true and powerful. 
The wisdom of the world says even if there is a God, he does not care or understand what is happening in my world. And God in his wisdom says, I do care. Here's my wisdom. Look at the cross. Yes, the message of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the the wisdom of God. Yes, we need grace that humbles us and brings us to the dust. And we need grace that cuts us open and exposes us to who we really are. But then thirdly and lastly, we need grace that restores us in verses 17 to 24. See, God exposes us and humbles us that he might bring us to that place where we delight only in him. He doesn't want us caught up with cheap substitutes that ultimately will fail us. Listen to this great poetic text in beginning in verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. That Lebanon, through the Assyrians and the judgment and the wars, that beautiful land, perhaps has become barren and sparse, but God says, I can bring it all back, but not just bring it back. Not just make it fruitful. I will make it blossom in such a way it'll be a a forest of fruitfulness. In that day, the depth shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless shall come to nothing, the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. God can restore. God does restore. In his time, when he's brought you to the dust, when he's exposed you to the deep, dark ugliness of your soul, you can... Turn your back and resist and bang your fist and be angry and bitter against God and it will destroy you even more. You are kicking against the pricks. Or you can repent and turn your face toward God. And by his spirit, as you look to Christ who was crucified for you, His spirit comes in you and makes you alive. And he turns that barren life into a lush forest of fruitfulness. He takes that deafness to the word of God and allows you to hear those wonderful words of life. He takes that blindness where you were only captured by the fleeting glories of this world and he allows you to get a glimpse of that eternal, lasting, infinite glory of God. He takes those who are weak and impoverished and he gives them fresh joy. Praise God. I long for that. Amen. And God gives it. 
Fresh joy. It's not the joy of yesterday or the day before. It's the joy today of a God who's living. Of a God in whom you are in union with through Jesus Christ. Who can give you real joy, fresh joy today. Yes, God in His sovereign and merciful grace has determined that you and I will never be satisfied with anything less than Him. Any joy that you have will be a lesser joy and a temporary joy. Any satisfaction you find will always be a lesser satisfaction and a temporary one. But when you come to Him in repentance and faith, when you come in your weakness and your poverty, when you come to the one who is infinitely kind and gracious, then and only then will you have a satisfaction that will never end. Because it's only Jesus who can keep the promise he made. I am come that you might have life. Abundant life. That reminds me of one of my favorite gospel songs. Perhaps my favorite. Nobody sings it anymore. But I love it because it expresses what I feel in my soul. Listen to these words. All my life I had a longing for a drink from some clear spring. That I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Feeding on the husks around me till my strength was almost gone. Longed my soul for something better. Only still to hunger on. Poor I was. And sought for riches, something that would satisfy. But the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. Well of water ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. And then I love that chorus. Hallelujah, I have found him. Whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. By his blood I now am saved. Hallelujah! I have found him. At the end of chapter 29 and verses 22 and following. When God's people are restored and they see the goodness of God and are satisfied with his goodness. Isaiah tells us they will no longer be ashamed. They will praise him. They will regard him as holy. They will stand in all of him and they will listen to him and be taught by him. So how about you? Tonight you may be in the dust. God has humbled you. Hopefully, God has defeated you. But you have a choice. You can keep on fighting. You can keep on resisting. But if you surrender, 
He will turn your upside down world upright. You will see the beauty of his truth. You will begin to love him from your heart. You will embrace his wisdom, the folly of the cross. And he will begin a restoring process of making you fruitful, giving you ears to hear his voice and eyes to see his beauty. And you will live and stand in all of him and praise his name. If that's what you want, then repent tonight and submit and simply say, I surrender. Let us pray. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed for just a moment. You're resisting, would you surrender? The dust, it's not easy, it doesn't taste good. But if you could just, in repentance and faith, turn your face toward God, you find a God who's infinitely good and infinitely merciful and infinitely gracious, who because of the work of Christ will begin in you a work of restoration. But you must surrender. Would you say tonight, I need to do that. I want to do that. I will do that. Could I pray for you? Just quietly slipping your hand up saying, yes, God is speaking to my heart. Amen and amen and amen and amen. I surrender. I'm not going to resist the dust. As a matter of fact, I will see it's God's grace that has brought me to the dust that I might see his glory and have fresh joy. Amen. Father, thank you for your grace that humbles us. Thank you for your grace that exposes us to the deep darkness of our own souls. And thank you for your grace that in Christ restores us and makes us fruitful once again. God bless those tonight who say, I surrender all. I know you'll meet them where they are and begin a work of pouring fresh joy and fresh hope into their lives. All because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you.